Welcome to Professor Charlene Hesbiber's podcast series. In our sixth podcast about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, she talks about the women in her study who elect to have surgery, the reasons they give, and how empowered or disempowered they feel by their decisions and actions. Almost 80% elect surgery, and some do it very quickly, some wait a while. They're usually in their 40s, they're married, uh, they have children. Most often, they come from families with a very, very high history of cancer. Uh, Most women have lost a close relative to cancer at some point. What are the main reasons that women give for having preventive surgery, and how do they articulate that in their, their interviews with you? A kind of overall worry and fear. Worry and fear are very strong predictors that propel BRCA-positive women to immediately elect the surgical route. Some medical professionals may position being BRCA-positive as needing surgery right away. There is this overwhelming, if you're not armed with this knowledge and you don't do something about it, well, it's your problem. Having this test means for many women, you're going to do something about it. For lots of women, that look at surgery. Surveillance simply isn't enough. There's a feeling often that circulates around BRCA-positive women's experiences that says, if you wait too long, you're really playing a game of Russian roulette. If you know you're BRCA-positive and you start surveillance and you play that waiting game, you're never going to know when the gun will fire and you'll be diagnosed with cancer. And we know that even in my study, it does happen. They wait too long, say these women. So that's not going to need. I'm armed with knowledge. I have to do something about it. And again, the genetic testing industry says its biggest um, draw is knowledge is power. Once you know, you can take care of that mutation, eradicate, stop cancer in its tracks. And you owe it to your family. Your mother didn't have the information. She died. And very often, women will get these tests or get surgery on their mother's birthday, the day that uh, their mother had died. They, They honor their mother by getting the surgery or getting the test on their birthday. Again, family plays a role. Women whose mothers had died um, tend to have surgery in my study, 100%. And so they don't want to be ambushed. By their bad gene. And how do they view the surgery when it comes to what they think or what they believe it will achieve for them? Well, the first thing is it's going to get rid of the cancer. And there's this profound belief that if I have preventative surgery, I will be cancer-free. I will stop cancer in its tracks. Now, we know the sad part of that is it may or may not stop cancer in its tracks. But for the majority of the women, they do buy into the idea that if I even get my healthy, the other breast removed, the healthy breast, getting two removed is better than one, even if the other one is not diseased. So there's this kind of surgical fix idea that it's going to fix my risk of cancer. And maybe it will, and maybe it won't. Maybe surveillance would be just as good. We don't have that part of the story showing up very often. Presumably there are a number of uh, practical factors as well that maybe propel women towards making that decision to go ahead with surgery. They look at their cancer clock of their family, usually their mother's cancer clock. They are also ready for surgery because they have very good support networks 
around them to facilitate their recovery and post-recovery from surgical experience. You know, surgery and recovery from surgery, if you go back, maybe if you have an infection, you really need to have those supports in place with the support of family and friends, with really thinking through this decision and feeling in control, they can quickly feel that they can can move to that decision from an empowered perspective. I'm interested that you use that word because you talk about surgery being empowering for some and disempowering for others. Let's talk about Caroline first, who felt very much empowered by her decision to undergo surgery. Yeah, Caroline is something else. I mean, she was extremely confident in going into her surgery. She said, for example, I did it for the right reason, for myself. I was ready. You know what I mean? The fact that I could prevent or reduce my risk significantly was huge. I don't know why people have such bad experiences. I don't know if it's because they weren't ready. Maybe their doctors weren't right for them. I'm not sure. I was ready because, she says, I knew what I was going to do, and I knew it was going to be good for me. And in the end, I had no negative feelings about it. Caroline's 39. She's married. She has children. And you can see from this voice, she's pretty empowered. And um, I love when she said, I did it for the right reasons. She even had an oophorectomy after that, there were several months later. And I think running around in her story is this belief in the power of preventative surgery. This power of the surgical fix, it's like a totem for her. It carries her through some very, very difficult surgeries. What about those women like Liz, who had an altogether different experience and felt completely disempowered? Liz's mother died of breast cancer. She wanted a surveillance at 29. She chose to have the BRCA test as soon as her physician recommended it to her. And she always knew the result would be positive. But she didn't feel very good about the overall outcome. She wanted to do screening. That was her goal first. And her geneticist recommended she thought surveillance would be good for Liz at this point, at the age of 29. And she says, I walked in to get my results. They're all looking at me. And I could tell from their faces that I was already positive. The counselor was saying, how do you feel? And I said, okay, I want to go shopping. (laughs) They laughed and confirmed what she already knew. And she wanted to go and move on with her life. And I think she was sort of happy with surveillance. But then another medical professional soon told Liz outright that this was the wrong choice, that mammography and MRIs were not going to prevent cancer. She says, the doctor said, no, it's not enough. She told me, you know, you have to have a mastectomy. And that one sentence did it for me. By the time I came in from Monday through Friday with my husband at her office, I said to her, get out all the papers to do surgery. Whatever she tells me, let's do it. So what was it, do you think, in that conversation that made her almost completely change tack? She lost her confidence in her decision. And she felt as though her options that she thought she had were no longer there between surveillance and surgery, that she felt she needed to have preventative surgery because cancer was about to come. She did not like the advice that second doctor gave her, but that made her feel she had no choice and no alternatives. She said... I had no information. I went in blind. I had my doctor and their nurses and everybody was great and all that. But there's no one to balance my doctor's extreme perspective. And she said, 
all I could say is if I continued with surveillance, I guess I'm going to die. And nobody said otherwise. So where did things go from there for Liz? She decided to have a preventative double mastectomy and a hysterectomy. Although her doctor's words gave her those biggest pushes towards surgery, Liz began to revisit her own family's history again, you know, influenced also by a mother's death from breast cancer. And she began to lean on the breast surgeon and the prophylactic recommendation. In the end, her choice was disempowering. A good portion of it was disempowering because she felt, I guess it was too quick. It it took a lot of time for her to recover, even though she says her experience with surgeries in the end was positive and she's beginning to accept her new body. Uh, and she thinks it was right. It's going to take her a while to feel this was the right choice. She's not there yet. What did you feel you learned overall from the women who who decided to go down the surgery route? You need to make the decision. Liz needed time to decide that she wanted to accept that diagnosis and that, that surgical fix. And she just was not ready to make that decision. And when she made it not being ready, she felt disempowered. I wonder what other factors are at play here as well when it comes to having that feeling of being in control, of feeling ready, of feeling empowered. The interesting thing to me is it's not so much the experience you have of going to surgery. You may, in fact, have a bad surgery. You may need to go back and readjust your breasts because one's bigger and the other's smaller, or you had a lot of infection, it took you a longer recovery time. But even among those women who suffer some setbacks, they still say they would do it again, and yes, they were empowered. And so it's it's being in control that takes you through those difficult times. When you feel you have no control, when you also lack support from family and friends, I think also to be considered is um, the life stage you're at. You know, if you've already had kids and you've decided to have a oophorectomy, that's maybe less painful than even if you're in control and you're a younger woman and you have a oophorectomy, it means you can no longer have children. And so even in spite of being in control of those surgical decisions, it's still disempowering at another level. Also, if you're the kind of person who is worried about your body image and somehow other, you're not married yet. You know, I want to find a boyfriend. I want to have children, but I had a oophorectomy and a double mastectomy. I can't nurse my children if I ever have them. And as one woman said, what am I going to tell my boyfriend when he feels my breasts <laughs> and they're hard and cold? I mean, so, you know, you have another set of, of issues that you have to deal with around empowerment, but that feeling of, it was still the right decision, is when you're in control. Charlene Hespiber was talking to me, Chris Garrington, about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, which is published by the University of Michigan Press. In our next podcast, we'll talk about life after surgery for the women in the study and how they go on to find a new normal for themselves and in their relationships.